it's crazy how quickly people in our society will just bug out about stuff. Did anybody notice the, um, there was something in the news about like gas this week? Did you, yeah, okay, you're with me. I don't even have to tell that story. Okay, but I was in, a, if you've been to Williamston, North Carolina, little town, uh, northeastern North Carolina, I was there Friday, and uh, they don't have much gas. We got it all here. They don't have it up there yet, I guess. And uh, I would tell you this. There was a story. I'd love to tell the story in a longer setting later, but this is, I, I basically almost saw a big community fist fight, um, and it was something, because basically the tanker had filled up all the gas. I was second in line at the tank. I needed gas, because I live in Wilmington, and I drive an F-150, so I needed gas, and that's where I was, and uh, I was second in line. The tanker had just filled up, and the lady at the, ca- the register was like, I'm not allowed to turn on the pumps. And everybody was like, oh, yes, you are. And so this one lady, she was like, well, let me talk to them. I'm going to call the corporation. I'm like, where do you get their phone number? Who is the corporation? That's what she said. And then people got out of their cars, and they were like, it was like a mob. If you've seen the movie Beauty and the Beast and that one scene where the guy's like with the mirror, and he's, I don't know, he's, I don't know. That's what I felt like. It was like Gaston was trying to take on the castle. Anyway, sorry for a 90s Disney reference. But that's what I felt like. So I was with some boys, some Boy Scouts. I was like, we're leaving. We'll get gas somewhere else. And we, we did. But, uh. It's crazy how quickly people bug out about stuff. You remember, you remember the great toilet paper shortage of 2020? How much toilet paper do you need? We bug out about things. Now, I tell that tongue-in-cheek because we get it. It's silly. But let's be honest. There are some real-life situations that are bad. If you look at the world, some people have it bad. Real pain and, and poverty. War is terrible. Homelessness. Hunger. You don't have to go far out of our doors in this room to, to see it. Today we're continuing this teaching series called Wrestling with God, and I want to dive right in. We're talking about one of the topics that really messes with our heads the most. We're talking about suffering. Yay. Suffering, because it's one of the things that it messes with our head the most. Why would God allow suffering in the world? What does he have to say about that, and what do we do? So today we're going to be looking in the Bible, as always, for some of life's most important truths and God's most important teachings. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and crack it open. You can look on your phone on an app, or we've got free paper Bibles back at the coffee bar for anyone who needs one. So if you forgot yours or you just need one, go get it. It's free. You can take it home, put your name in it. It is your Bible. Uh, But we are going to be in a crazy book of the Bible called the book of Job. In fact, we're going to go through the whole book of Job today. It's not pronounced Job, it's Job, but they're spelled the same. And we're going to meet a guy who probably knew suffering better than anybody that you could imagine. And so if you want to go ahead and grab your Bibles, turn over to the book of Job. It's in the Old Testament. I'll give you some time to find it. Uh, But let me give you some background on the book of Job. First thing, this to me is the coolest thing about the book of Job. Job may be the oldest story in the world. It might be. Some, there's debate. But it might be one of the oldest stories that we have. It's certainly the oldest story in the Bible. It was a story that happened before someone wrote down Genesis. That's pretty neat. And so there's, there's some more stories we can say about that. This is the second thing I can say about the book of Job. I present to you today that the book of Job, let's talk about genre. Okay, so the Bible is 66 books. It's a library. It's not just a book. It's 66 books. And every book has its own kind of genre. There's history and there's prophecy and there's all kinds of things. What is the genre of Job? People call it a wisdom literature. I've recently been convinced that the book of Job I present to you is a drama. It's a play. Uh, Whether or not there was a real person named Job is not the point. There might have been, and there's very, very reasonably someone that was, but I don't think that's the point of this writing. And you can tell by the way that it's written. So, okay, Shakespeare, Aesop's fables, these are, you know, these are 
stories, they're plays, and they often have a point that's trying to be taught. And I believe that that's what the book of Job actually is in terms of genre. So let's jump in. We're going to meet Job. Job chapter 1 and verse 1. Here we go. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. And I cannot read that without thinking about Dr. Seuss for some reason. That sounds like the way a Dr. Seuss book. Well, that's a real place. Job lives in Uz. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters. And he owned 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels and 500 yoke of oxen and 500 donkeys and he had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. That's impressive. So what do we learn? Well, we learn that Job is a righteous man. He's a genuinely good guy, okay? We learn that Job was rich. He was extremely well off, in fact. And in general, Job was just living a good life. I mean, who wouldn't want the life that Job had? That's Job, okay, until the drama shifts. The plot of the drama changes, and you read along, and if you start in about verse 13 of chapter one, we're not gonna read it, it's a long book, we're not gonna read it also, but basically what happens starting about verse 13 is like, bad stuff starts to happen, like extremely bad stuff starts to happen to Job. First of all, he finds out that his oxen and his donkey were attacked, I mean, that had a dollar for every time that happened, but his oxen and his donkey were attacked, his servants were killed, and the bad guys got away with his animals. So that's about his wealth getting taken away. Right after that, this is insane. It says that fire fell from heaven and burned up his sheep and the servants that were watching them. That's rough. And before he could even recover from finding out, like, basically all of his wealth was gone, he finds out that his children had been at a party. A great wind had come, collapsed the house, and everybody inside died. Wow. I, I'm telling you, this is a drama, okay, and we have set up a story. A guy who has everything, and now he has nothing. The only thing that survives is his wife, and it's him and his wife. But it gets worse for Job. Job starts to get physically ill, and so you look at chapter 2, if you want to flip over a page or scroll down, in chapter 2, starting at verse 7, we see this. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord, and he afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head, and then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. About three years ago, I got into the worst pile of poison ivy I've ever been in. I was climbing out of a river in the mountains, and just the only way out was through this brush and I mean, I'm allergic to poison ivy, and I looked for it, but I didn't see it. Head to toe. It was, I'm not going to describe it to you because it was nasty, okay? And it got so bad that I had to get prescription medicine to deal with, like, the inflammation and the itching and the pain. Okay, so that's rough. Maybe you've had chicken pox or poison ivy. But imagine having, like, the worst body sores that you could have after you have already lost everything that matters to you. He's in a low place. And so Job is in this spot where he's like, is there any happiness left in the world? He was trying so hard to honor God through it all. But he gets to the point of misery and suffering in his life where eventually in chapter 2, verse 9, his wife speaks up and says to him, Job, are you still maintaining your integrity? <laughs> you should just curse God and die. His wife was upset too. She lost everything too. Have you ever been there, like the bottom of the barrel? And uh, you're like, it's, what is the point anymore? I've been in some pretty low places. I don't know if I've been this low, but man, can you relate with Joe? Because we're setting up a story of like everything to nothing, and then what about God in those moments? 
That sounds pretty low to say curse God and die, but that's where Job was. He was miserable. He was suffering, and this is how Job replies in verse 10. It's pretty noble of him. He replied, you're talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? And in all this, Job did not sin in what he said. So there's a reason this is called wisdom literature by many people. Dang, that's good, right? I mean, if you're going to accept the good that comes in this world, and we readily accept that, sign me up for the good, I mean, some bad happens. So we've got to accept that too. But that's not even the point of Job, though that's pretty wise. The drama moves on. Okay, so next, and this is what happens next, and this is the majority of the book of Job. Three friends showed up. There's a couple more, but three main friends show up, and they show up to do something called sitting Shiva, or Shiva, I'm not sure the Hebrew word, Shiva or Shiva. They sit Shiva with him, and that's the process of, when your friend's going through something bad, it's customary that if you're really close to them, you'll just go and you will sit with them silently. You're actually expected to not talk. They're hurting. What can you say to Job anyway? So you just sit. I think it's a pretty beautiful process that they do that. Just, I'm just here. I'm here for you. I want you to know I'm here. You can cry. And you're not allowed to talk until they talk. Well, these friends, their names are uh, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. They mourn with him. With no speaking, it says, for seven days. Now, this is ancient Hebrew literature. I actually don't think it was seven literal days. I think that's a symbolic number. That means a really long time. But let's say it was seven days. And they just sit silently, until Job finally breaks his silence, okay? And so this is when Job finally talks. Job chapter 3, if you're following along, starting in verse 1, he finally speaks. After this, Job opened his mouth, and he cursed the day of his birth. He said, may the day of my birth perish, and the night that said, a boy is conceived, that day, may it turn to darkness. May God above not care about it. May no light shine on it. He is so broken that he says in verse 26, you fast forward to the end of that chapter, he says, I have no peace. I have no quietness, I have no rest, but only turmoil. We're talking about suffering today. Okay, have we established life stinks for Job? That's basically what this drama is setting up, which is really sad, but it also gives his buddies permission to speak because they've been quietly sitting Shiva. He finally speaks, and boy, do they speak. For the next 34 chapters, all they do is speak over and over and over again. And uh, they, they kind of talk in circles, but they're, they're having this conversation with Job, and they're trying to decide, why is Job suffering? Why are you going through this? And we can boil it down to a lot of different things, but I want to kind of boil it down to one big idea that they're trying to convince Job of. They're basically like, Job, what have you done to deserve this? What have you done to deserve this? In their mentality, they say, well, God is a just God, and he punishes people for things if they do it bad. And he rewards people if they do good. Job, based on what I'm seeing, you must have done something really bad. Now, just so we're clear, that's actually not what the Bible teaches. Jesus talks about that. Bad and good happens for different reasons. Hopefully we'll have a better picture of that by the time we get to the end of Job. But that's what they're convinced of. And Job fights back. He's like, I haven't done anything. I was doing my best. God, why are you doing this? And they're like, no, Job, I'm telling you, we got to get to the bottom of this. What have you done bad? What have you done bad? Eventually, Job gives in. He says, okay, maybe, maybe I did. And he decides to curse God and die. What great friends he had. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Thanks for lifting me up. Um, after this whole thing plays out, the drama dramatically shifts, okay? Something amazing happens. A new voice enters the conversation. It's the voice of God. 
God speaks up. And so we are not going to read all of it. It's a lot. We're going to read a couple of verses, though. If you want to flip all the way to Job chapter 38, Job chapter 38, let's hear what God has to say after he's listened to Job and his buddies whine for 34 chapters. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. He said, who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you understand that. Who marked off the dimensions of the world? Surely you know that. Who stretched out a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Who laid the world's cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? And God goes on and on and on. And this is a profound, this may be the most profound section of Scripture in the whole Bible where God's just like, let me just tell you, son, okay, you... You want answers from me. Let me tell you who I am. It's an interesting thing. We'll keep going. Obviously, the answer is, no, I wasn't there for any of that. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how you made the sky. I don't know how you made the earth. You make a good point, God. God. Uh, as a parent, there have been many times in my life where my kids are like, Dad, why don't we do this? Or why do we have to do that? And parents, can we just commiserate for a second? This is what I say. Hey, how about you let me be the dad and you be the kid, okay? We'll do that because I think you'd be terrible at being the dad, all right? So, you know, like you ever, so, and I'm not in any way gonna be like, yeah, I'm, I'm like God level and they're like Job level. What, like that, I, that's not even where I'm going, but like I can be, God, like I feel you, bro. I like, I understand what you're saying. Like my kids don't have a clue and they're gonna challenge me. And so this is what God's doing to Job here. When we begin to dive into the depths of God's understanding of everything, the spiritual realm specifically, we have nowhere to put our feet. It goes so deep over our head. We can barely understand the world that we live in, the things that we touch, physics, medicine, biology. We can barely understand that. We're like, we're, we think we're so smart, but we're just barely getting to the start of it. Go build a human brain. Have fun with that. You can get all the molecules and all the tissue, put it together, but there's something spiritual that goes on so, so back to Job. God's like, <laughs> you want an explanation? You want an explanation from me? I am the creator of the universe. I keep the stars in motion. I can't explain to you the depths of my knowledge because your head would explode. You cannot understand me. So no, I don't owe you anything. I am the creator. And before we're like, man, that seems kind of harsh, God. Doesn't it? Because we love to read the stories of Jesus and his gentle nature and, and this grace. We love grace. Do we are. Sign me up for some grace. But it's important for us to remember that God is a mighty God. He will not be challenged. He will not be put down and stepped on. Not for a second. And so though it sounds kind of calloused, I think it's important for us to know that there's a side of God that should scare us. It should. He's the creator. I love a line from the, uh, the Chronicles of Narnia book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And Susan is talking to a beaver. So that happens in that book. Um, she's talking to this beaver. And, and there's a character called Aslan. Aslan, if you don't know the story, he represents God. Okay, so he's, and he's a lion. He's a lion. And so she says, Susan says, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. 
Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. That's one of my favorite lines in all literature. The lecture from God goes on and on to Job, where he's like, sit down, boy, let me tell you who I am, okay? And we're like, but Job's hurting. Job's suffering. He's lost everything. Why is God fussing? This is a drama. There's a lesson to be learned. It's not that God has no grace or no compassion on Job. But the story is teaching us a lesson. What Job finds here is, don't forget this word, perspective. Perspective, you know what perspective is. It's like, what can I see from where I'm standing? <laughs> Job can see his suffering. God's like, I see it all. And I understand that you're hurting, but you need to understand that my ways are not your ways. Let's find some perspective. Oh, what do we do with that? <laughs> what do we do with that story? God is so much greater than we give him credit for. Um, you know, we'll, we'll dedicate a whole hour to him every week. It's, and, uh, you know, I say that facetiously, but isn't that how we kind of treat God? A little time? Oh, man, I gave you five minutes of Bible study this morning, Lord. But he's the creator of the universe. Um, spoiler alert here, okay? There is not a line in Job where God steps in. He's like, okay, okay, I'm just kidding. Let me just answer your question. Let me explain why there's suffering in the world. He does. And I'm a little frustrated with that, and you should be too. You know, should be. God's going to show up in your dreams and, and fuss at you, I guess. If we, like, but at the same time, I like God. It would be so much easier if you would just explain why there's bad things in the world. People leave their faith because of this question. You know people. You may have been in that boat. You might be in that boat right now. Can't believe in a God who would allow so much suffering in the world. But God doesn't come out and answer the question in this drama. Now, there's a resolution to the story. Because it's a, it's a play. We want to see the main character have a resolution. And so, spoiler alert here. At the end, God restores Job's health. He restores his wealth. Uh, he has more children. And he's happy again. Okay? So we don't get the answers, but we do get some direction. Okay, now I'm going to get a little nerdy on you. You guys know I love getting a little nerdy and, and talk about uh, literature and stuff like this. And so this is cool. Okay, there is a lesson in the book of Job. And it's actually so beautiful. So I want you to like strap in because this is about to get super deep and you're going to learn how to study your Bible a little bit better today. Okay, you ready? I'm serious. Like don't tune out. Don't tune out. If I say a word you've never heard before, lean in, write it down. Okay. There is an ancient literary form for teaching called the chiasm. The word is C-H-I-A-S-M. Chiasm. And it's a literary device that many, many ancient authors used all the time uh, to force their readers to look at complicated stories and dig into the story, and it's important, discuss the story, and ask yourself, what is the lesson here? Okay, but the author uses tools and clues to help us. He uses patterns and parallelisms and a couple other things in the story so that as you're reading it, we Western re readers are lazy. We want the silver spoon full of answers. That's what we want. Eastern readers hate that stuff. This is, this is an Eastern story written by Eastern people to Eastern people, okay? So we kind of come in late to the story, but they love this stuff because it makes you lean into the story and ask questions about it. So the, the concept of the chiasm uh, it, it is all over the Bible. Jesus uses them in his teaching. It's all over the Old Testament. You want to have some fun? Google chiasms in the Bible. C-H-I-A-S-M. Do that. Specifically Google. I'm going to challenge you. 
chiasms in the book of Job. And you'll be like, what? This is not just reading. This is a puzzle. This is some things that I can learn from and discuss. Okay, and so uh, let me explain how this works. Job is the chiasm of chiasms of all of the uh, literary works in the Bible. This one has the most chiasms by far because it's a work that's been worked on and, and was in the cultural memory of the Hebrews for generations and generations. It's its oldest story. And so the version that we have written down is, is well-crafted because it's teaching a story. Um, and so what you'll find, and this is how you find chiasms in the Bible, look for patterns. If you see that someone has repeated themselves a couple times, you ever notice that in the Bible? It ain't an accident, and it's not because they think you don't have a good memory. It's because they're using the literary form called the chiasm, and they want you to lean in and find what they call the treasure. If you follow the path of the, the, the patterns and uh, the parallelisms, you will find the treasure. So uh, l- let me just show you what this looks like in the book of Job. So I've, I've got some notes up here on the screen that hopefully will be helpful. The book of Job lays out like this. This is a super 50,000-foot view of the book of Job. S- step one, uh, we start talking about Job's, Job's good fortune. Job's good fortune, okay? Then, Job loses everything. Then, a bunch of people talk junk about God, okay? So then, Job gives up his faith, his hope. He's done. He's done, okay? That's the first, does that sound familiar? That's the story I just told. Then, God shows up. All right, so that's the first half of the book of Job. Now, the way that you can start to see that this is, there's parallelism is because as the story folds out again, you'll see that the same story is told, but this time in reverse with different details. Check this out. The book moves on. So God shows up. Then Job's faith is restored instead of him losing his faith. And then a bunch of people praise God instead of talking junk about God. And then Job regains everything And the book closes by talking about Job's good fortune. You see this pattern? And you see how they mirror each other. Now this type of chiasm is what people have called an hourglass chiasm. And if you think about the shape of an hourglass, wide at the top, thin, wide at the bottom, the treasure in an hourglass chiasm is in the center of those two, you know, V's. So here you can see very, you know, 50,000 foot view, God shows up. That's a treasure. That's actually not the treasure of the book of Job. This is like a very mediocre outline. The treasure of the book of Job shows up in chapter 28. What's the point of Job? Why is this man going through so much suffering, and why do we have to talk about it? I want to look at Job chapter 28 this morning. So if you got that, flip over to it. And this week, I want to challenge you to read the whole chapter and think about it a lot and talk about it with your friends, okay? We're not going to read the whole chapter, but we're going to look at parts of it. It starts out like this. Job chapter 28, verse 1. There is a mine for silver and a place where gold is refined. Iron is taken from the earth, and copper is smelted from ore. Mortals put an end to darkness. They search out the farthest recesses for ore in the blackest darkness. What in the world are we talking about? Okay, let me set this up for you. Uh, Humans are awesome. That's what they're saying in this first section. If you look back, and this is an ancient book, what is the most technologically advanced thing that people were doing back when this story was started? They were finding metal in the ground. Our our human history in the early years is marked by what type of metal we found in the ground and how we used it. We got the Iron Age and the Bronze Age. You heard about that in history class? Because, wow, it's not just on the ground. We dug in there. We found little nuggets, and we melted them down. We're like, I can make a shield out of that. I can make a sword out of that, right? Further, we're defined by silver and gold as it continues. So in ancient, ancient times, the advancement and majesty of mankind was our ability to mine in the earth. So that's what this is talking about. We go, uh, what does it say? Mortals put an end to darkness. They search out the farthest recesses of ore in the blackest of darkness. And it goes on talking about tunnels and it's underground. So you keep on reading down. Um, 
Look how great mankind is. Okay, that's what this is setting up. Look at verse 7. No bird of prey knows that hidden path. No falcon's eye has seen it. We're talking about this, you know, underground tunnels and stuff. Proud beasts do not set foot on it, and no lion prize there. Okay, so we're better than the animals. <laughs> we can dig tunnels. We can find gold underground. We're so good. Look at the greatness of mankind. And yet there's still so much we don't understand. So the question of Job is, but what? But what? We found all this stuff. We're so great. So verse 12 kind of kicks in, and here is the treasure of Job. But where can wisdom be found? Where does understanding dwell? No mortal comprehends its worth. It cannot be found in the land of the living. The deep says, it's not with me. The sea says, it's not with me. It cannot be bought with the finest gold, nor can its price be weighed out with silver. Skip ahead to verse 20. We're going to get into the rest of it. So where then does wisdom come from? Where does understanding dwell? It is hidden from the eyes of every living thing, concealed even from the birds of the sky. Destruction and death say only a rumor of it has reached our ears. Real quick right there. We've dug into the earth and we found its riches. We're so good. But even while we were digging in the earth, we couldn't find wisdom. We have no idea. There is so much we don't understand. And here it is. This is the nugget of wisdom. This is the treasure God understands the way to it, and he alone knows where it dwells. For he views the ends of the earth, and he sees everything under the heavens. When he's established the force of the wind and measured the waters, when he made a decree for the rain and a path for the thunderstorm, and then he looked at wisdom, and he appraised it. I love this. this what do we appraise? Gold, silver, Fine metals, okay, iPhones, computers, Tesla, that's what we appraise, right? God looks at wisdom, and he appraised it, and he confirmed it, and he tested it, and he said to the human race, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to shun evil is understanding. Now, if you feel like you just opened a fortune cookie, <laughs> good. The point of the book of Job is to make you lean in, look for the treasure, and discuss it. It's not truth in a silver spoon. Our wisdom is limited. Our perspective is limited. But God's is not. Some of our answers we search for, and we won't find them. And that's not fun because we like answers. Google has spoiled us. But there are some things that only God can know because he sees things we cannot see. If you look at the whole drama of the story of Job, you find out that there's a lot of spiritual battle going on behind the scenes that Job never finds out about. That's what caused his suffering, this spiritual warfare. There were evil forces coming against him. Wasn't that God was like, ha, smite you. No. Actually, God, God said, actually, I got, a lot of, I got a lot of faith in Job. Job's going Job's gonna to make it. I, you ready for this? I don't know why God allows suffering. Do you? 
we don't. But as I've done my best to research it and understand it, because I walk side by side with people suffering all the time, I found this. That though God is not going to really reveal the reason for our suffering, he hasn't left us without tools. And to the best of my ability, I found that God's remedy for suffering is hope. You can get through anything if you believe there's something better later. God's remedy for suffering, I believe, is hope. Now, that's not good enough for some of us. And I think to us, God would say, well, sorry. I don't owe you any explanations. I gave you oxygen and tools to figure this out. But if you really want to know, lean in and seek my wisdom. Seek my presence. Seek my people. And try to understand the hope that I offer. Because God does not abandon us in our suffering. Even Job, he was there the whole time. He actually trusted Job's uh, fortitude more than Job trusted it himself. He's like, no, he'll be okay. I, I do this with my kids. My, my son, I love, my, my son's 14, and I love uh, letting him help me with whatever. And, and uh, the other night, we were back in the truck up to hook up a trailer, right? And I've been, I've been apprenticing my son for years. I'm a church planter. We're a mobile church. We've been pulling trailers like I've pulled trailers more than I pulled anything in the world and a kid could hook up a trailer and I backed up the truck and it wasn't right and you know what I could have got that trailer hooked up a lot faster if I got out and I looked but I just sat there and I waited for him to say a little bit forward back oh yeah back ah he missed it he missed it and then I waited and I man everything in me this the problem solver in me wanted to get out and park that trailer you know put it on there but I had to wait I'm not the perfect father, but I believe that's what God does with us all the time. Stop. I'm not going to enable you to be weak. <laughs> I know what you're capable of, and I'm going to allow this for you. But he never leaves us alone. He's always there watching. The Apostle Paul knew suffering all too well. I won't tell you all about Paul's story, but in the book of Romans, chapter 5, verse 1, this is what he says about suffering. He says, therefore, since we've been justified through faith... We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into his grace in which we now stand, and we boast in the hope and the glory of God. That's a big passage you can unpack later, but basically God's like, I got you. Okay, I'm right here with you. I've given you Jesus. But in verse 3, he says, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. I'm not going to keep going yet. Did you hear that? Suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance leads to character. And character leads to hope. And hope doesn't put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. I can't spoon feed this to anybody. You've got to discuss it, and you've got to lean in, and you've got to understand the hope of God. And if you don't know that today, I want you to know you're not alone. God, in his wisdom, that through our suffering, it would make us stronger, and we could grow through it. You know what God did for Job? He just stepped in and started speaking to him. That's what Job needed. And he actually does it for us, too. If you keep reading Romans chapter 5, verse 6, he says, you see, 
at just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the story of Jesus. This is what we talk about here every week. Okay, so I'm not gonna dive too much into Jesus, but if you're new here or you don't know the whole story of Jesus, come hang out with us another couple weeks or flag somebody down and be like, hey, could you tell me the story of Jesus? There's a lot of people in here who would love to tell you that story. But I want you to know, God has not left us alone in our suffering. He has stepped into the equation. As you wrestle with God through suffering, and as you wrestle alongside with your friends and stuff, you don't have to do it alone. God has stepped into the equation. Uh, Like Job, you can wrestle through your suffering with friends. Unlike Job, I recommend that you find friends who aren't going to constantly just tell you to curse God and die. Okay, Find some God-honoring friends. Wrestle through it with them. And don't be afraid to take it to him in tears. Job is broken because he wants to hear from us. Verse 23, here's the treasure. God understands the way to it, and he alone knows where it dwells. For he views the ends of the earth, and he sees everything under the heavens. And when he established the force of the wind and measured out the waters, when he made a decree for the rain and a path for the thunderstorm, Then he looked at wisdom, and he appraised it, and he confirmed it, and he tested it, and he said to the human race, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to shun evil is understanding. Lean in, look for the treasure. Don't do it alone. Let's pray.